Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, because your word is what changes us. And, and I just submit this message, Lord. I submit myself to your word. Father, I pray that you will continue to speak to us and that you will use what you've given me, Lord, to, to really penetrate our hearts, that we will get what you are saying, Holy Spirit, that we will uh, catch what you are speaking and that we will walk it out, Father, because it is about the internal change of how you want to use your church and advance your kingdom so that the world will know that you have been sent, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Um, so, yeah, I want to get started um, now and just kind of recap a little bit of what uh, Brom preached last week. It was an absolutely incredible message. If you haven't listened to it, if you weren't here, I would really... Um, strongly advise that and suggest that you just take a listen on the uh, podcast. It was pretty powerful. Um, he talked about being a spiritual person, and I don't want to go through his message, but I do want to recap a couple things of what he said leading into the message that I want to speak about today. Um, so he mentioned that God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And it's, it is amazing that we find a lot of our churches, even as a whole in the body of Christ, a lot of our worship services seem to be geared towards emotion and, and really getting an emotional experience and an emotional feeling. Um, but we have to understand that we're called to be spiritual people. So everything that we do must be led by the spirit. It can't be by emotion, you know. So we have to gear our church or our worship services by the spirit. Um, and, and a lot of times I think with emotion, we, it's really dangerous to lean on that because we can all be in different circumstances in our life. You know, some are great, some are not so great. Um, but we have to make decisions and be led by the spirit. And the other thing that um, really stood out to me was how our spiritual identity is not based on what we do, but it is based on who we are. And when Brahm talked about Judaism and how that is a perfect example to use because when you look at the law, the law is actually at its most or at its biggest power when it is broken. And that just actually shows the weakness of the law because the law actually will justify or come to someone's rescue at the expense of another person so or another situation. So the law, when it is broken, that's when you see it come into effect. But that doesn't change people internally. So when you see these man-made systems on an external or from an external point of view, we have to understand that, you know, even though the law, as, as we're governed by the law in the world we live in, which is great, but we can't expect the law to actually change people. It's actually an internal change that has to take place. And that comes in the heart. Amen? All right. Just want to make sure that you're, you're with me. I might say that a few times. I'm looking at some faces and, you know, you might be falling asleep. So if I say amen, then if it wakes you up, then that's good. That's good. So I want to build on that. I want us to go to... Um, Luke chapter 22, 
verses 24 through 34. I want to read this passage of scripture. And the message that I want to bring today is actually, I want to talk about one attribute of a spiritual person. One attribute of a spiritual person, the the scriptural reference is Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 34. And I'll just begin to read it. So a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am the one, or I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But Simon replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. So Brown was preaching on Peter last week. I want to continue building this because I want us to kind of look back at the conversation that Jesus had with Peter before we get to First Peter. It, it is, it's, I'm going to try to contain myself as I'm giving this because it's, it's really incredible. Um, so in reading this, you know, if I can paraphrase in my own words, Obviously, this happens right after the communion. Nat was just reading the scripture from communion. So as you look down, um, you come to this passage. And as I was reading this, it was like I could, you know, I I get very, I, I guess, creative or imaginative in my own thinking. So the way I could kind of see this happening, you know, you got a group of guys around the table. And they're they're actually right before this are trying to figure out. You know, who's the one that's actually going to betray Jesus? So they're asking the question like, man, is it is it me or maybe it's him or, you know, because they didn't know. Obviously, John could get, you know, get it out of Jesus because Jesus or John was the one that was known to be the most loved uh, or the beloved by Jesus. But they're asking this question. They're trying to figure out who it is. And it's funny because in my mind, I started thinking, you know, one of them. You know, if a dispute broke out, then one of them had to start it. You know, it's like maybe maybe James was sitting there and he said, well, look, I know I'm not the one that's going to betray him because I've been doing everything that Jesus wants me to do. As a matter of fact, I've stepped it up. I think I think I'm probably greater than all of you guys. And then I can just hear maybe another one say, no, nah, James is 
it's not you, it's me. Maybe Andrew, maybe Matthew, I don't know. And then Peter just kind of stepping up and saying, guys, come on, I'm the greatest. Like, seriously, I'm the one that had the revelation that Jesus is the Christ. When he asked the question, who, who do you say that I am? I said, well, you, you have to be the Messiah. So this whole dispute is kind of, you know, bubbling up and they're kind of going back and forth. And, and, and it's like Jesus just calms them down and says, guys, come on. This is not what we're about. This is not what I've taught you. You're not here to be lording and be kings and being try- and trying to be ones that are ex- you know, exuberating or trying to push your authority on people. That's what the Gentiles do. As a matter of fact, the kingdom or the greatest in the kingdom should be like the youngest. You guys that... Our ruling should actually be like the ones that are serving. And then he asked him a question. He said, let me ask you, who's greater, the one at the table or the one that is actually serving? And it's not a trick question because Jesus says, obviously the one that is at the table. But I'm among you as one that serves. So right there... When we read that, Jesus is all, you know, he's already telling them, it doesn't matter what you think, who the greatest is. I'm the greatest. And let me tell you how it's going to go. The greatest being me, I'm the one that serves. I'm trying to give you the example. I'm not here to be at the table. I'm here to be the one that serves. So that should be like you. So he goes... And he tells them, you've been with me through my trials. You've been with me through the circumstances that I've had to face. And you've seen how I've operated through that. And now I'm going to give you the kingdom like my father has given me. And then he points out, Simon, this is where it gets really good. He tells Simon, as a matter of fact, it's interesting that As we read, we can see how Simon becomes the chief apostle. He's known as the chief apostle. So as the greatest, he has to step up and be the chief, but he has to step up in his serving, in his looking after people, in his strengthening people. So Jesus points out Simon. He says, Simon, Satan desires to sift you. And to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed that your faith will not fail you. So I want to I stop here because I want to give us a solid definition of what sifting actually means. How many men here do cooking? How many men can cook? Just men. Just men. Yeah? Oh, I'm actually, Okay. Don't raise your hand if you don't do it. But please, raise your hand high if you do. Yeah? Will. <laughs> but you can't. You, you. Okay, all right. Well, that's fine. You can boil, you can boil water, as Brom said. <laughs> Toast. That's good. That's where you start. Uh, what, about, what about women? I don't want to assume that all women cook. Right? Yeah. Well, well, good. And this is the reason I'm saying it, because I cook a little bit. But I'm understanding that, you know, looking at 
this word sift. Obviously, when you're sifting something, you know, you pull flour into a sieve and you kind of shake it around because you want it to be smooth. You don't want it to be lumpy as you bake. You want that cake or whatever you're making to be as smooth as possible. So when you eat it or when someone tastes it, you know, you don't taste clumps of flour and you, you don't want that just sitting in your mouth. So there's a purpose for sifting and, and that is a definition. But there's another definition for sifting as well that works both as a verb as a noun. And I, and I want to read that to you. What sifting means is that it is to examine something thoroughly so as to isolate that which is most important. To examine something thoroughly so as to isolate that which is most important. So as you think about it, as I was reading this, I went back to what Jesus was saying and you can kind of put that definition in there because Jesus is saying, Simon, Satan desires to examine you thoroughly so he can isolate what is most important. And the purpose of sifting is that it is easier to mix other ingredients when forming what you are trying to create. So if the enemy here can sift you and shake you up and get down and actually isolate what is most important, then it allows him to kind of start to put some of his ingredients and his ideas and his thoughts and what his purpose is to try to create what he's trying to form in your life. This is what Satan wants to do. And Jesus is saying, Satan, Jesus is saying he desires to sift you as wheat. But now here's the wheat that is really, really interesting. Sifting wheat is quite different. It's a two-step process in it. Does anyone know or want to know what the two-step process is? Love to? Okay. All right. Well, I'll give you the first one. Let me give you the first one. The first step is to actually, with the wheat, you loosen the chaff from the edible grain. And you do this. Now, back in the old times, you know, new, modern, you can take that with one truck. You can kind of do two steps in one. So it's... It's pretty easy, but what they used to do back then is they actually used to spread the wheat onto a stone or a concrete floor, and they used to beat it with a flail. And a flail is like, you know, a a rod or a rope with a rod attached to it with this ball and, you know, these sharp spikes. And what they used to do, they just used to beat the, the wheat over and over again until it would loosen the chaff from what was edible. So you had this grain that was covered by the wheat. So if I'm Peter and I know this, you know, and back then they would have understood this because Jesus is using this as an example. Satan desires to sift you as wheat. It's like, well, thank you for telling me that, God. Thank you. Surely you're going to stop him from doing this. Surely you're going to rescue me from this happening because that sounds treacherous. Like, I don't want my life to be beaten 
by the enemy. I don't want to be weighed down. I don't want to go through, you know, stress and anxiety and my life go up and down. Surely you'll take these pressures off of me. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to stop Satan from trying to sift you. He actually says, I'm praying that your faith doesn't fail you. The goal is not for Jesus, in, as he's talking to Peter about this, the goal is not for him to stop Satan from what he is desiring to do. And I know we look at our circumstance, we look at our life, and it's like, oh, God, when are you going to step in? You know, I'm going through this turmoil. I'm going through this process of wanting to get out of this situation. Surely you're going you're to come in and do something. You're going to come in and, and save me from this. But that's not the prayer that Jesus is giving Peter. He's actually telling him, I'm praying that your faith in all of this does not fail you. Because this is the one attribute that you need to be a spiritual person. So I'm going to allow some of these things that need to happen, happen. Because I want to see your faith come up. I want to see you grow. So as we read that, it's like he's, he's not here to rescue him. He's here to tell him that his faith and what he's praying will not fail him. But Peter being Peter, obviously... He's like, oh, okay, yeah, I don't know what you just said right now. I get it, but look, Jesus, I'm going to go with you. I'm ready to die for you. I'm ready to go to jail. Whatever it takes, I'm going to stand with you. And Jesus is like, Peter, you're actually not. I know you think you are. And as baby Christians, it's like we want to take on the world and that's a, good, that's a good fire to have. Jesus is not, you know, trying to discourage him. He's just actually telling them, you're not ready yet. You're actually going to deny that you knew me. But when you turn back, you've got to strengthen the brother. You're not there just yet, but it's, it's okay. So why faith? Why is faith so important? Because your faith in him is what allows Christ to build us up as spiritual people. We need it. So here's the second step. I've given you the first. I'm going to give you the second. The second step is called the winnowing process. And now all that means is where the loosened chaff, now that it's just been beat and beat and beat, now the loosened chaff is removed from the grain. And the way they used to do this is pretty simple. All they did was just throw it up in the air and they just allowed a decent breeze to blow away the loosened chaff. And the heavier grain is what would fall to the ground. And it got me thinking, it's like, okay, Lord, you use this example. What are you saying right now? I'm trying to really fathom what you're, what you're saying here because if they threw it up in the air and just the breeze could take away what they've beaten, what they've worked on, 
and it leaves what's heavier, it leaves that brain that they want to use. What does that mean to us? And, and I felt like God was just showing me it, it's actually our faith that protects our hope. It's actually our faith that protects what our lively hope is. Now, the living hope, obviously from last week and in Peter, as we'll get to it, the living hope is Christ. We are actually brought to him as living stones because Jesus is our lively hope. He is our living hope. So our faith must always be in him. It cannot be in our circumstance. So when you think Jesus telling Peter, I pray your faith doesn't fail you, it's like Jesus is giving him a preview of what is going to happen because in, in so many words, Jesus is saying, this is going to shake you up in what I'm about to go through. Now, I've tried to prepare you for this. I've tried to tell you I'm going to die in so many words, but, you know, as much as I've tried to prepare you, you're going to see something and it's going to shake you up. It, it's it's going to bother you. Because I know when we look at the scriptures, we can see it from the perspective of an overview of what it looks like knowing that Jesus is the Christ. So as we're reading this story, we already know what it is. We already know the end. We know what is going to come out of it. We, we can see that. But if we put ourselves in Peter's shoes, they didn't have what we have. So as we're reading this, think about what Peter is seeing. Now, they had the Old Testament, so they had the prophecies. They had what it looked like when it came to the fact that Jesus was coming or what the, what the Messiah was going to be. So the revelation that came to Peter from the Father was that Jesus was in fact the Christ. But being human, you, you have to fight the doubt and the unbelief. So when you're looking at Jesus from Peter's point of view, he sees a human to another human. He's obviously put everything or every ounce of trust or every part of him into following Christ, but he hasn't seen Jesus die. He hasn't seen this man who is the Messiah actually go through all the pain that he was going to go through. So if Peter is looking and he's watching him, he's seeing him be beat. Well, why is my Savior getting beat this way? Why is my Savior going through all of this turmoil? Why is he going through all of this scourging and this flogging? And oh, now they're nailing him and he's bleeding like I would bleed. And he's not saying anything. He's not doing anything. He's just letting all of this happen. And yes, I've denied him, but now he's dead. The one that my hope is, is dead. So you have to see his point of view is a little bit more fragile than ours because we know he gets up. But Peter he doesn't really know that. So he turns away. Jesus has already told him, I know you're going to turn away. And we know this because he says, when you turn back, I need you to strengthen your brother. So, in reading this and knowing my faith has to be not in the circumstance, because in this situation, Peter's circumstance is 
pretty much a lost cause. It's like everything he's believed in seemingly is gone. The situation is just, it's dire. It's, it's, it's no, it's nothing that can actually tell him it's going to be okay. Other than the fact of what Jesus has spoken, which is, I pray that your faith doesn't fail you. Not your faith in what you see, but your faith in me. You have to trust that what I've said and what I've done is going to happen. You have to trust the revelation that you got from the Father. I am the Messiah. Don't look at the situation. I know it's hard. I know everything about the circumstance that you're in is completely opposite to what has been told you. It's completely opposite to the revelation you have when it comes to who I am. But don't focus on that. I'm praying that your faith will not fail you because I'm the hope and I cannot fail. So that is my prayer. Not only do we look at keeping our faith in the right thing, which is the hope of Christ, but which is the hope who is Christ. But we have to understand that our faith is not just for us. It is to strengthen the people that we call in our community, which is the church. Brahm even said last week, people don't grow independently. We all grow in the context of community. So Jesus didn't say, I pray that your faith doesn't fail you and leave it at that. He didn't say, when you turn back, I'll accept you and you'll be walking in the kingdom and, and we'll be all. He didn't say that. He said, when you turn back, guess what? You got to strengthen the people that are with you. You got to strengthen the people that need a little bit more. Their faith might be, might be down. Their situation might be a little bit louder than what their faith is. You got to strengthen them. They might feel discouraged. You got to strengthen them. They might feel depressed. You got to strengthen them. They might feel anxious. You got to strengthen them. Because you got to be a spiritual person. You got to deal with things being led by the Spirit. Your faith is not just for your benefit. It makes you responsible to build other people. This is why faith is so valuable. This is why faith is so priceless. And guess what? When Jesus, it, 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 the other thought came to my mind when he said, I pray your faith doesn't fail you. It's funny because he didn't say, I pray your hope doesn't fail you. Because Jesus is the hope. And he knew he can't fail. It's Reading back or listening back, tell me, listening back to the message when Brahm talked about, even in the scripture, how it is the obedience of Christ that makes us the elect of God, that actually gives us our inheritance. It's not even our obedience to him. It's actually the obedience of Christ because Christ settled the entire issue. When he said it is finished on the cross, he meant every word. He said, it is actually 
finish. So the hope being the anchor will never lose its power. It will never lose its strength. The issue or the response that we have to have comes out of our faith. Because it is impossible, it is impossible to please God without faith. So the prayer is, I pray that your faith does not fail you. So after reading that and after getting a little bit of a glimpse as to what Peter's life, life was like in that place when he was not as mature, you know, he had zeal, but he wasn't ready for some of the things that, were, that was going to happen. We see it because actually when it happens, he turns away, he goes back fishing. It's like, I, I put everything in that. You know, I left my occupation, I left everything, and now to see it all lost in the simple fact that the one who I trusted the one who I called the Messiah is dead. I'm going back. But Jesus wasn't worried about him going back. He was just praying that his faith did not fail him. Jesus is not afraid of our life situation. He's not afraid of our circumstance. He's not afraid of what the enemy tries to do. That's why he just let the enemy sift him. And guess what? We're no different. But it's not to bring fear. It's to bring the simple fact that is our faith that is in the hope of Christ that gives us the victory. And it's not a quantity of faith. It's not, yes, do, does our faith grow? Absolutely. But it's not this big idea of I need a lot of faith to get the job done. No, a mustard seed, a small amount, a little bit in the hope has it already covered. Whatever the situation is, you are victorious because the hope who is Christ, we are now spiritual people in a living hope that is right now that is right now and is also for where we're going but what makes it so great is that our faith is what Jesus prayed for and the, sim the simplicity of it is that that one attribute makes us mature spiritual people so I want to read really quickly, 1 Peter 1, you don't have to turn to it, I, just, I really just want you to listen, because I want you to listen from the point of view now, after giving what it looked like for Peter to be walking through life and some of the things that he had to face in the beginning to now. Now he's grown, now he's matured, now he's come to the place in writing the letter of 1 Peter. Of 1 Peter. And he knows what it feels like to go through some trials, to go through some tough things. So I, I want you to listen with, with your ears. You don't have to really read it, but hear what I'm saying. Praise be, and, and the musicians, you guys can start coming up. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you, have, you, may, have, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. It's like you can, you can see him writing this Maybe he's reflecting in the moment of what it was like for him to go through the trials that he's been through. Of what it was like for him to understand that, yeah, Satan, he, he tried to do this with me too. He's doing this with all of us. But I can remember Jesus telling me, I pray your faith does not fail you. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold. You can't say that unless you've been through something. You can't say my faith is greater than gold unless you've actually been through something. You've had to be tested. You've had to have issues in your life that weren't always up here, but maybe way down here. Greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith. The salvation of your souls. Man, this walk is not an event. It is a journey. And when I read that, it's like God beginning to kind of start to really reveal how Peter was in one place with a lot of emotions, with a lot of issues and, and how Christ just walked with him through now this place where he's encouraging the brethren, the same thing that Jesus commanded him to do when he came back. He's encouraging them, he's exhorting them, he's lifting them up, he's telling them there's more that's going to happen. Persecution is here. Persecution is coming. And persecution can look different in all of our lives. We can't have faith in the things that are temporary. Yes. Does God want to bring things that gives us happiness? Yes. Should we pray for things or ask God for things that 
you know, in this life we want to see happen. Absolutely. I mean, look when Jesus comes back. He brings complete restoration to Peter. When he sees him in the water, he sees him on the boat, and he yells out, have you caught any fish? This is after he's died and resurrected. He shows himself to Peter and the disciples. And when Peter recognizes it's Jesus, he just gets dressed, he runs out of the boat, and he runs directly to him. They sit by the fire, and Jesus says, do you love me? It's not for him. It's to bring that reconciliation. It's to bring that restoration for Peter to know Jesus knew the whole time. It's like he's telling him, it's all, it's all right. You're back. It's okay. It's all right. The relationship is here. Yes, do I believe that God wants to give us everything that we ask for, even above and beyond? But our faith cannot be in what we ask for. Our faith cannot be in situations that can go up and down because if it is, that's when you allow the enemy to isolate you. And if that happens, it allows him to pour in the things that he wants you to think of. Well, if my situation didn't work, then can I really believe God is going to work other things out for me? Or if this didn't happen, is God really who he says he is? Is God a healer? And if that's the case, is he really a savior? See, the process of sifting is a slow process. It's not, it's not right away. Satan has been here longer than all of us combined. But what matters is, is that your faith does not fail you. Because if your faith is in the hope, which is Christ, it can We can stand to our feet. Jesus prayed this as he said to Peter. And just to let you in on something, Jesus, as he said in the scripture, my father always hears me. He's always heard. physical, whatever it might be, whatever it might be in your life, it might be saying the complete opposite of what I'm preaching right now. But what matters is, where is your faith? I didn't ask how much faith you have. And I know sometimes that comes across like, oh, well, how much faith do you have? No, it's not about how much. It's about where you put it. Where is your faith? Because if it's in the hope who is Christ, then that's where and that's all that matters. It's the one attribute we all need and we all have. So 
Father, I pray now as you deal with our hearts, each and every one of us, as you challenge us to really come into the understanding that it is faith that pleases you, but it is our faith in you that seals our victory. As we walk and as we journey in life, Lord, show us where you want us to bring more community in. Show us where you want us to even strengthen one another. We're here not to live life for someone, but to bear one another's burdens. Be together and do together. I pray your grace. I pray your peace upon every one of us, Lord. And I pray, Father, that you continue to work out our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.